I'm Billy. I'm Drew. And this is Pilot Club. Well, um, another week. Funny, I realised that we kind another of... Another week, another dollar. Another week, well, or not, in the case of this. Um, although <laughs> this is all done pro bono. Until we get our, our, road, our road sponsorship. Exactly. Comes, although, comes, into, comes in the mail. Yeah, yeah. Um, our listener base does seem to be expanding, though. Like, mm. every week, like, it's in the hundreds sometimes in the thousands mm. i don't know where they're coming from but yeah. thank you for listening yeah and if you're interested in knowing what it's like to be a commercial airline pilot then you yep. you've come to the wrong place <laughs> yeah, exactly. that was initially i got like advertisements from like aircraft companies like, oh they're, they're the only adver- an interesting tie-in the only advertising <laughs> reach out i've got has been from like airline carriers basically <laughs> well they've clearly done their research they have yeah i, I sense it was our <laughs> algorithmic um it's funny though, I realised we kind of, we hit 50 episodes without really... Celebrating it. No, because I, yeah. I, I had this idea in my mind that we'd do some really big, you know, archive corner show for 50. Maybe we yeah. reach 100. We'll I do. think 100, we're going to do something big. Maybe maybe true crime. Yeah. Maybe best of. Maybe best of true crime. Or maybe we both choose, for, for that one, we both choose an yes. archive corner just for that episode. Yes. Every 100 episodes, we both do an archive corner. I like that. I yeah. like that. Yeah. What number are we up to at the moment? I think this is 50, 53. 53, okay. So, so we're still a fair way off 100. but so We've all already been going for about the equivalent of a year then. Yeah. You know? We're entering middle age. Yep, exactly. And I feel like <laughs> I, I've never gone back and listened to the earlier episodes. It's, yeah. Actually, I, I never listened to the episodes at all. Do you? Do you? <laughs> like, I just, it's, it's one and done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. We, we substitute spontaneity for quality control. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. We've evolved. Anyway, um. <laughs> Do you, do, you want to, do you want to take us on to the first show? Yeah, this so we're week? looking at a, a couple of interesting pilots this week. Mm. Um, and our first one uh, comes from Apple TV Plus. And I think this has all the hallmarks of an Apple TV Plus mm. uh, program. It's very sleek, it's very beautiful to look at. Mm. Uh, it has that kind of uh, Apple TV Plus sheen, mm. if you will. And here it's a kind of uh, aqueous sheen. Mm. So this pilot is for a new TV series called Surface. So Surface is set in high-end San Francisco. Literally. That, well, that's true. That's true. Geographically mm. and in terms of socioeconomic class. Uh, it stars Gugu Mbatha-Raw uh, from Morning Wars. Mm. Were you familiar with her? Did, you, did her face ring a bell from Morning Wars? Yeah, I mean, I love Morning Wars. Like, I think it's... I think along mm. with Servant, it's my favourite mm. Apple TV Plus yeah. release. So yeah. there's some big Gugu moments in... Uh, well, it's kind of an ensemble. It's an ensemble cast. Okay. So she's just one part of it. But no, yeah, she's great in it. Okay. Mm. Um, so she stars as Sophie, a woman who suffered a traumatic head injury. Um, and, believe, and she's been left with uh, severe or extreme memory loss. Mm. Um, so amnesia, mm. that old sore. Mm. Um, now, she believes that she uh, attempted to commit suicide by jumping off a ferry. And there's a great question in this show about whether that was um, the truth or not, or whether there might've been some other motive um, that led her to um, find herself in the water and uh, fighting against the current towards a ship's, ship's propeller. Because she can't, she can't remember anything about her life, right? Like, mm. it's not like she, you know, it's, it's not like she's only like, it's, it's not like she can't remember the incident itself. She can't remember her personality. Mm. She can't remember her husband. She can't remember her friends. She can't remember the, what led her to, you know, supposedly jump off voluntarily. So she's, it's a complete blank slate. It is. Yeah. It is. It is. So, yeah, her memory starts almost at the moment of traumatic impact with mm. the ship's propeller. Mm. So this series uh, traces Sophie's quest to put the pieces of her life together mm. and to help her understand what exactly 
her relationship with her husband looks like um, and whether it is all it seems. Because there are suggestions, aren't there, that there's been domestic violence in the There past. are, there are, hints. yeah. Yeah, yeah, little hints there. And it's, it's kind of, it's like a procedural where the main character is investigating herself, mm. which is kind of an interesting mm. idea. Mm. And she's navigating the relationships with her friendship group as well. Mm. And again, there might be a suggestion that her friends might be gaslighting her, mm. perhaps because they want to conceal something from her, perhaps because they also are well-meaning mm. and want to conceal... Um, something from her in a kind of benevolent way. Well, they don't, they don't want to, if she did genuinely try and commit suicide, they don't want to return her to that yeah, mindset. They don't want to re traumatize her. Mm. Um, so uh, we see already in this pilot a number of twists and turns mm. and even the suggestion of a, a shocking love triangle. Mm. Um, and the way the Apple byline sells this show is. What if you woke up one day and didn't know your own secrets? Yeah, well, and, and, and that suggests. I mean, what I, I mean, I thought this had all the lurid pulpiness of like a mid nineties mid budget thriller, or like or, yeah. or, or like an erotic thriller. You yeah. know, so it's got yeah. that it's got that same absurdity, that same relish of like convoluted plot devices, yeah. that willingness just to push it to ridiculous places. Yeah, but at the same time, all you know, expressed through this veneer of tastefulness. Yes. So it's that combination yes. of like ridiculous lurid content with high-end tastefulness. Yes. And I think... It's a strange combination. Yeah, it's one of our favourite combinations. <laughs> it's it's definitely, yeah, it's a, it's almost a B picture yep. masquerading yeah, as an exactly. A picture. And I think almost it... it uh, the, other, the other strand there, of course, is all those great Hollywood classics about amnesia and especially yep. the Hitchcockian kind yep. of thrillers where, you know, psychosis and amnesia yep. are such a critical... But uh, I think, part of the plot mechanics. I, I agree with that, but I think like those '90s films, they almost like depsychologize it mm. and just turn it into a into a ridiculous kind of a, a ridiculous yet tasteful premise. Yeah. So I think yeah. It's, well, I thought the San Francisco setting was you know a callback to, yeah, sure. oh, to, to movies Vertigo. like Vertigo, yeah, especially. And I mean, and it's interesting, isn't it? Because she remembers nothing of her life. Everything around her just it resonates in such a vivid sensory immediate way mm. so it's like she wakes mm. up in this immaculate mm. mise-en-scene mm. lush tasteful appointed mm. and she has to kind of try and figure out what's perverse about it mm. or mm. what's rotten about it so mm. it kind of puts her in the position of the erotic thriller viewer yeah. in a way or the kind of you know the mid-budget thriller viewer like you're presented with this incredible tableau mm. that is in every way is classy but there's just something slightly off about it that you have to figure out. Yeah. So, and even like yeah. little Something's deep... awry. She has to find what's awry yeah. in her life. And there's something, it's like... Perhaps it's her. Yeah, exactly. And there's, it's like there's a fecundity to it mm. that's just a little bit off or a little bit intense. Like, mm. for example, there's quite a few scenes in her kitchen and it's like this ridiculous alcove behind the kitchen mm. full of like ferns and tropical <laughs> plants. Like that kind of lushness is just like... It's a slightly queasy lushness, you yeah. know, the lushness of like a hothouse plant. So it's like she's she wakes up in this perfect, yeah, perfect mise-en-scene, but yeah. she's got to figure, something's not, something's uncanny about yeah. it. She's got to figure out what that's, it is. That's right. This kind of, this sheen almost evokes a kind of dystopian yeah. text in some ways, like her, her organs are, you know, going to be harvested yeah, or something yeah. along those lines. So uh, that's it's, what, yeah, it's uh, this kind of perfect uh, kind of this world where all the blemishes have really been ironed out. Mm. And everything is a little too perfect, a little too bland. It almost feels like a kind of commentary on the Apple TV aesthetic itself. Because <laughs> it the Apple it TV is. aesthetic is so airbrushed. Yes. Sometimes to a fault. Yeah. 
whereas here like it almost turns that into the source of uncanniness yeah. in the show and that's why i think it's just yeah. it's i'm really glad they totally committed to the premise to have her forget everything yes it just it, it works so well for her <laughs> to be just put into this world yes and almost be experiencing it herself like a film yeah there are constant there are constant moments in in this uh series that are so ridiculous like mm. almost laughably ridiculous mm. but paired with like again like you say that very tasteful mm. apple aesthetic like the interchanges between her and her psychologist yeah her psychologist says the most ludicrous things to yeah. her but in this really sincere knowing tone well the psychologist but... at times seems to be blaming her yeah. and at other times i mean the psychologist the psychologist message is don't try to know too much about yourself yeah. it'll all be fine <laughs> like the psychologist is like almost don't don't worry about getting better yeah just, just yeah. keep just keep on you know yeah don't ask questions She's like will i ever regain my memory no, 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 here, no. no. <laughs> I mean, and Don't that, worry too much and about that. That's what I mean. Where it's kind of like you feel like in someone like Hitchcock, there is this somewhat earnest engagement with like psychoanalysis. Whereas here, it's just pulp. Like that psychologist. <laughs> like compare that to like Spellbound. Yeah. Like there's not. I mean, it's funny, isn't it? Because it hasn't got very good reviews. I mean, it's got quite poor reviews. A lot of which have said, you know, it's slow. It's it's preposterous. But I like. I thought the slowness was more like languor. Yeah. You know, it was lushness. Yeah. I think I agree. I agree. I, I was expecting this to be really boring, but mm. I certainly didn't find that. And like you said, just that that evocation mm. of that '90s erotic mm. thriller mm. Uh, environment, mm. and particularly in the in the latter part of this pilot, where she starts exploring. Chinatown well, and obviously any sort of scenes shot in mm. the kind of lurid confines of Chinatown mm. in San Francisco we're thinking of our callbacks you know yep. our real canon texts yep. Yep. our Jade yep. dare I say one of the, I mean, one Caruso of, one of our favorite, we may even watch Jade tonight it's we, not, we it's might, not our we might, watch we might. Yeah. look something I found interesting about that too because I, I like that connection like I think the premise is interesting in that respect, right? Mm. Because the fact that she jumped off the boat or was pushed off the boat, it means she's, I guess you call it aquaphobic. Like mm. she's afraid of water. Mm. Mm. And that's quite a, like for someone to be afraid of water is no small thing in a city like San Francisco. Yeah, exactly. So How she, inconvenient. Yeah, exactly. So she can't travel over water mm. or get close to water. So mm. there's all these scenes of her traveling as like BART, Bay Area Rapid Transit. Like mm. she gets the train underneath San Francisco Bay, mm. There's a really incredible, and which is, again, that's something you rarely see in films about San Francisco, like the mm. underground railway system. Mm. And there's this incredible moment early on where a cab driver tries to take her the most direct way to her destination, which mm. is over the Golden Gate Bridge. Mm. And as she, as they approach it, her kind of perception breaks down. And it's almost like, and she, she actually, she tries to get the cab driver to turn around, then makes him stop on the bridge. But, you know, it's such an unusual way to approach that icon and I kind of feel like more generally, it's like her and the show, they have to occlude any sight lines that involve water. Mm. So it's like she has to repress water. So there's this, but that also makes water feel more uncanny and present in mm. some ways. There's a great mm. scene like where she goes for a run, like to deal with her trauma. And it's like this montage of San Francisco mm. and you don't see any water in the background. There's no shots of the harbour. There's no shots of the ocean. And yet water kind of returns as this repressed you know, entity. So it's mm. just been raining, so the streets are slicked with water. Mm. She, it, it's on this run while she's trying to forget about water that she has flashbacks to being pulled out of the water. Yeah. And she ends up actually, you know, without even realising it, the run ends up taking her to Fisherman's Wharf. Yes. And then to the ship that she actually fell off. Yeah. So like, Or even the Chinese restaurant is set on Water Street. Well, I was going to say, exactly. Like one of the, one of the key clues takes her to Water Street. Mm. And it, it's almost like there she... Anyway, yeah, she discovers a different kind of fluidity because that's where she gets a critical kind of 
internet password that takes her into an, an online space that helps elucidate the crime more. But mm. I just thought it was like a really interesting premise to have a show set in in San Francisco about a character whose trauma means they have to repress any sight lines involving water mm. or the very idea of mm. water. Mm. And the look of the film kind of captured it. Like it reminded me a bit of The Undoing in that like there's this kind of blurring around the edge of the frame. Mm. And it's almost like the film is trying to keep water out of her peripheral vision. But again, it just makes the image look more fluid. It's almost like it's like you're watching the show through like a crystallising tear or yeah. something. So there's all these efforts to kind of keep water out, but they end up just making water feel more present. And mm. I just thought that was really mm. a really evocative yeah. way to capture mm. the water the city. metaphorically. You know, stands for the kind of the boundless, yeah. you know, uh, permeable mm. uh, nature of her memory, mm. and you know, she's sticking to these kind of you know very confined mm. uh, sight lines and mm. clear, clearly delineated jogging routes, mm. just to to maintain her composure mm. and maintain her kind of um, self identity. But like the more she does it, the more that part of the cityscape comes to the fore. Mm. Like the more that she. The more that the camera tries to blur out water, the more it looks like there is li- liquid on the lens. Yeah. And the image is liquid, and it yeah. just made me think too. Like, yeah, like imagine living in San Fran and being scared of water. I say something else that really resonated. Like, I, I've only been to San Francisco once, like in the nineties. I remember, like as a kid, like being really struck by like what a massive homeless population it has. Mm, like, it's you yeah. know, it's renowned for one of the. It's, it's, it's been renowned for years as having one of the biggest, maybe the biggest homeless population. And that that's certainly referenced here. And I feel like she kind of feels psychologically homeless. Mm. Like there's something about that, like the show makes these analogies between her and homeless people. Yeah, it's a city where that feeling jettisoned in that way kind of makes sense. Yeah, in some ways, um, San Francisco is a city that's priced out its residents. Yeah. So everyone there is operating, you know, either in some sort of, you know, tech utopia outside mm. of the city or else people are using it as investment property so it's a city that's kind of been hollowed out and that's i guess also you know she shares because mm. literally her memories have been mm. erased yeah exactly and the tech thing is interesting isn't it because as you said like that water street is a massive clue and mm. it takes her from literal water to this kind of fluid online space and it feels like there is there's something going on here about you know, such a big preoccupation of like erotic thrillers and you know those mid-budget '90s movies are the encroachment of like digital space. Yeah, and that's it's almost like that creates a paranoia in a certain kind of '90s genre film. Like we have to incorporate it, but we also have to make cinema as lush as possible to fight against it. And yeah. I feel like there's that tension is just revived here a little bit. It reminded me a little bit of one of our favorite films of the year, Dark Waters. Oh yeah, not not up yeah. there, not quite as good as Dark Waters. Yeah, we, we, we may be among the few people who love Dark yes, Waters. Adrian, absolutely. very very late work, Adrian Lyon. But it's got that same that same charged yeah. fluidity, like yeah. that. It's like yeah. it's like the fluidity takes us to a a cusp of cinema that is like this is cinema at its most lurid yeah. and preposterous and spectacular. Yeah, those dark blue kind mm. of tones as mm. well. And yeah, you you do say. I think her her husband is meant to be a tech mm. entrepreneur. Yeah, he's like a tech billionaire. Yeah. So there's that. There is that sense of this kind of digital mm. space that is that is yeah again on the periphery here, and again presents that mm. that challenge to the cohesion of her memories. The husband is interesting too. Like I wondered whether the series was going to have like some kind of race angle too, because mm. you have like this protagonist, like a black woman, 
And all of a sudden she's placed in this immaculate space where white people explain who she is yeah. <laughs> and what her memories are. And there's a scene where the husband explains who John Coltrane is and, and re-explains music to us. I just wondered yeah. whether that will kind be... Get out vibes. Yeah, like because that, that 90s budget, sorry, that 90s mid-budget thriller or erotic thriller, whatever you call it, it is so paranoically white. Yes. That, that is so much a part of its vision. And yeah. I just wondered whether that was... Yeah. It just, Until it was reappropriated as uh, you know, the blaxploitation erotic which Which, canon, we, which, I mean, if you uh, have which not, is even better. If you have not seen this, this kind of wave of... African-American erotic thriller films, including, was it Obsessed, the remake Obsessed, of Fatal yeah. Attraction? Yeah. Um, Idris Elba, they are they are something. <laughs> they're wonderful. They're, they're incredible. Yeah. Yeah. And to that end, the more this leans into its mm. erotic thriller influences, mm. especially in the latter half, mm. and especially as the love triangle emerges mm. and the kind of lurid, mm. uh, you know, scenes of, mm. you know, uh, voyeuristic scenes, mm. I think this actually starts really taking off. And, and at, maybe, that, at that point, I was I was kind of getting, yeah, I was an in. And maybe that's what's happening here historically a bit, right? We've got, there's two main, obviously as a throwback to the mm. classic erotic thriller, but it's all, maybe we'll also draw a little bit on that African-American, you know, revival yeah. in the 2010s as well. Look, I, I'm a hard in. Like, I, I thought the reviews for this really missed, you know, what was great about it and almost like willfully missed it. Like, this yeah. is... This is tasteful pulp, and it, it, and it, it revels in in that dissonance. Yeah, so, well, I guess we're, we've been wondering where the where the nineties erotic thriller has gone. Yeah, and perhaps it is it's, it is migrating now. It surfaced. to television. Yeah, you know, in the same way that the nineties thriller was was almost marketed not so much as a B picture as it was an A picture, and it, when it really you know acquired this critical, well, I don't know whether it really required acquired critical acclaim, but it certainly acquired like. Um, you know, a, a large number of viewers but at also, certain points. It broke through. And one of the things that really propelled the erotic thriller and that mid-budget thriller was the home video market. Mm. So these are films that were meant to be, you know, they were meant to be watched at home as much as at cinemas. So yeah. this feels of a piece with that as well. Um, I thought it was great. Yeah, I'm, I'm a hard in. Yeah. As soon as I, as soon as I realised what this was, mm. and I don't even know what this was is what it was intended to be, mm. But once I realised what it was, and once I, I met it on its level, yep. I was an in. Totally immersive. <laughs> okay, on to our second show for this week. And I think this is actually an interesting one to do alongside Surface, because this is also a show that I feel has been a bit misrepresented by critics. Mm. So it's a show called The Resort. It's um, streaming on Stan. It's created by Andy Ciara. And it basically follows two couples. Um, the first are a couple called Noah and Emma, played by William Jackson Harper and Christian Miloti. And they're holidaying in Mexico, trying to restore a kind of waning relationship. Mm. And while they're there, um, uh, Emma has an accident. She tumbles into a ravine and she discovers a mobile phone from 2007. And this leads them to investigate what happened to another couple um, named Sam and Violet. Or another, we don't know exactly if they were a couple, but another man and woman who were um, holidaying there. Um, around the time that there was a catastrophic, was it a typhoon, a yeah. tsunami? Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, typhoon, I think, or, or I think it's called a cyclone. Yeah, cyclone, yeah. yeah. And they're played by Skylar Gisondo and Nina Bloomgarden. So the way this has been represented, I think, by critics is as a kind of inferior white lotus. Mm. And I thought for the first 10 or 15 minutes it started in that way. You know, maybe not even inferior, but it started in that pattern, you know, kind of resort, ennui you know, Americans, entitled Americans overseas. But it quickly turns into a really interesting mystery and almost like a period piece about the distinction, I think, between the noughties and the tens. Yes. So, (laughs) you know, so 
the kind or of twenties. Yeah, or twenties. Um, but I think, yeah, a lot of it. But I think especially noughties and tens, because I think a lot of it revolves around two thousand and seven as a kind of hinge. Mm. So, watching this the, made uh, me realise popularisation of the iPhone. Well, exactly. So <laughs> a lot of this made me realise that. You know, the noughties, I guess, looking back, and it seems to be, you know, we talk about the long 19th century, the short 20th century, whatever. I feel like yeah. the short noughties lasted from obviously 2001. Yeah. That's when the 90s ended with September 11. I think to 2007, because the GFC then created a new landscape as well. Yeah. And there's a really a, a bullion sense in the flashbacks here of 2007 being kind of the good times. Yes. Like there's this... You know, when we when we shift back to the hotel at the time, there's these really elaborate, like, there's one really elaborate kind of crane shot that follows um, the woman from that time as and her father That's played an by Nick shot, Offerman as they kind of curve round and round a staircase. Yeah. I was um, wondering, also, this is Goodfellas. Exactly. It's like, like a 10 minute tracking shot. Yeah. It's an incredible piece it, of bravura filmmaking. It becomes and, really Baroque, yeah, right? Really yeah. Baroque and really kind of exhilarating. Mm-hmm. And there's all these kind of, you know, for people especially who live through it, there's all these kind of technological shifts or moments that you see around 2007, like, you know, flip phones are, are kind of coming to an end. Tech speak still exists in a way that it doesn't now. And when, at the end of the episode, when this couple from the past or these two people from the past arrive at the hotel, one of them wants to take a selfie and one of the other ones asks, what, what's a selfie? Mm. So, like, the word selfie is just coming into existence too. So it kind of frames it, kind of frames it as a period piece about... Yeah, like 2007 is mm-hmm. the kind of nexus between noughties and now. And yeah, like it's really interesting what it does with that. Like I I kind of feel like in so many ways what people want from tourism now. I mean, given that you can go anywhere in the world and given that the world seems so much smaller mm. and that, you know, in some ways the world seems so much more exotic when you can access images of the place you're going, mm. you know, on your phone in an instant. It's almost like people long for temporal tourism, like to go to places that feel back in time mm. or before the pandemic. And even going to a resort, I think, is a bit like that. Like, I think there's something about resorts generally. Uh, that timeless. Are, well, that have a kind of dated 90s luxury. Like, mm. I remember a couple of years ago, I had to go to Hawaii, um, you know, just to get some for some residency purposes. And I spent quite a lot of time in Waikiki. And look, it's all very high end and beautiful, but there's... Mm. And, you know, that was my first exposure to resort culture in a while. Mm. And there was an ineffable sense of 80s and 90s mm. luxury to it. Like, it felt like that was the high point of resorts. Mm. But, of course, travelling, too, is, is about wanting to go back before the pandemic. So mm. it's almost like I feel like this couple go to this resort to try and... You know, they go somewhere different spatially to try and restore their relationship. But that's not enough. So they they kind of what they need is this kind of temporal tourism, which takes them back to 2007, which mm. is also when they met. Mm. So their relationship maps onto the kind of the crime story. And it just becomes this really, I think, I've, I've watched another episode or a couple of episodes now, and it becomes this really poignant story of, on the one hand, trying to think back to that time around 2007 and realise that it feels like a discrete period, but also this couple reaching back to that as the moment they met and mm. the high point of their relationship too. So I, it took me by surprise given yeah. the kind of press it's got. I, I, yeah. I really liked it. I was curious you, what you thought. Were you aware that showrunner Andy Ciara was one of the creators of Palm Springs? Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, so, so that Palm Springs, obviously, for those who don't know, is mm. a loose remake or adaptation of Groundhog Day mm. as a much more acerbic romantic comedy starring... Um, Andy Samberg mm. and Kristen Milioti, who's in this as well. Mm. And it, it tracks a similar trajectory. Mm. 
but you know two people who meet at a wedding in palm springs in mm. this kind of resort type environment and keep experimenting with different ways of escaping this time loop mm. and at the same time um consolidating their their relationship while they explore the mystery of how to unpack this or how to unlock um this perpetual cycle and instead mm. return to kind of linear time and you know perhaps that's a similar plot that's really going on here well i think very much so like it's it's it that's i didn't know that he'd done that and that's that's such a that makes so much sense because i was kind of thinking like you think about what happens in great rom-coms right and so often great rom-coms involve characters traversing space in some way mm. to achieve romance so you think of like you know like for my money, probably the greatest rom-com for me of the 90s, Notting Hill. I think that stands up so... For me, that stands up incredibly. But so much of that is about to and fro's around place. So, you know, it, 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 it's named after a place. Mm. He immediately identifies he's in the house with the blue door. Um, so much of it is about Julia Roberts coming in and out of the threshold of that house, him going to her film shoots, him entering places he's unfamiliar with, like when he does you know, the horse and hound interview. So much of it is about characters moving in and out of each other's spaces. And I kind of feel like in, a, you know, in, the, in the age we live in, in a digital age, especially a dating, you know, online dating age, those thresholds don't resonate anymore. And it's almost like people long for those spatial impediments to romance mm. because they were part of what constituted romance. Mm. So in lieu of that, it's like the next threshold is time. Mm. So what you get in... I think in Palm Springs is a couple who have no real impediments to meeting each other or sleeping with each other or being with each other. So it's almost like they need the time loop as the impediment yeah. and the challenge that strengthens their relationship. Yeah. And I think a similar thing happens here. Like It's like the couple really don't have any... Although they've their attraction and interest in each other is waned, they haven't got any... They, they've got no spatial thresholds or challenges to connect them again mm. you know going places isn't interesting when you can be in your phone mm. so it's almost like this temporal challenge becomes almost like their fantasy of what they need to restore mm. their relationship mm. it reminded me a lot of um the show search party have you, have you seen i've that? never seen that no it's the premise of search party is this you know alia shawcat plays a kind of a jaded millennial who longs for some kind of spatial challenge physical some kind of spatial mapping and when she discovers someone she barely knew it. University's gone missing. She sets out to try and map her trajectory. Mm. So it's that longing to kind. Of, it's longing for a quest, to understand romance as a quest, which I think that's a common feature between this and Palm Springs. Yeah. Because yeah, you think about it in so many rom coms, like you know, while you were sleeping, it's all about that. You know, like someone falls in a train track, someone pulls them up. Like it's all about those kind of yeah, mm. traversing space in in almost like brinksmanship-like ways yeah. to build romance. There's something really poignant here about the way this historicizes the the noughties, yeah. as you said. So there's, there's you know, largely very subtle differences between the resort mm. that's destroyed and the resort that they're currently mm. in. They ramify those differences. Oh, massively. And, oh, yeah, just the little things like the, the use of the technology, the I, I, mm. um, iPods mm. and um, the, the fashion... And just a slightly different uh, resort decor and layout. There's a different kind of earnestness yeah. to the 2007 yeah. scenes. It's, I think it's the first noughties period piece I've seen that really dramatises that difference and in a material way because really what they're investigating are what are the little uh, glitches and mm. um, discrepancies between the two time periods mm. because those are the ones that ultimately you know, 
Um, there lies the key to mm. unlocking this mystery. It's almost like a kind of geology of media. Yeah, they have to or even archaeology, archaeology. This old phone that she literally finds that well, looks exactly. like a relic. She you know, dusts it off like mm. it's a broken shard of clay. Mm. And she takes it um, and replaces the SIM card and somehow manages to, uh, you know, to track down an old flip phone. Mm. It's, um, it's interesting, that scene too, because did, you know, part of... They almost feel this ennui at the resort as soon as they arrive. Mm. And she says, you know, we're going to spend all our time here. Mm. And then there's a scene about halfway through where she, you know, he's sleeping. She sneaks out in the middle of the night. And you're like, oh, is she going to leave him? But actually, she's she's leaving the resort for the first time to take the phone to a local, you know, phone shop so she can get the SIM card. So it's like she's at that cusp of leaving yeah. him. But actually, the phone becomes the lost object True. of the relationship. It's interesting as well because the resort obviously is, you know, full of kitschy kind of Maya mm. um, you know, paraphernalia. Mm. So the resort is promising itself a a, tra- a trip through time back to a, you know a bygone era, classical era, that's, that's... Uh, restoration of this kind of glory age of the Mayas. But again, they it's so kitschy, it's so mm. it's so chintzy, and instead, uh, what it promises it doesn't deliver. But instead, this alternative quest opens exactly. up exactly. time in the way this resort space doesn't. And the, and the two resorts, the one that's been destroyed and mm. the one that's currently yeah, extant. There's almost like a wormhole that opens up between the well, two. Well, I was going to say, you know, hence there's this incredible final scene. Like there's this, you know, for a show that starts with this kind of slightly jaded and cynical couple, it has this incredibly ebullient closing sequence where yeah. you have this, you know, enormous aerial shot over the courtyard of the old hotel. And then that segues into this incredible tracking shot of the guy from the past skateboarding. And that tracking shot takes him to the woman he meets, you know, the, the other woman from the past. And he, in order to avoid her, he collides with a tree and the tracking shot comes to an end. But this flamboyant camera movement takes us to the moment when the couple from the past meet, i.e. the moment, the point of contact between 2007 and now. Yeah. And then the it all kind of fades into this image that recurs through, like that, as soon as that tracking shot ends, it fades into this image that recurs throughout the episode and episodes to come, which is almost like halfway between an atoll, a coral atoll, and a wormhole. Yeah. So it really feels like there could genuinely be some. It's it's a really mystical scene. Like the 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 faces, the eyes of the four characters, the two from the present, the two from the past, flicker. Then you see stars kind of shooting towards us, like you know the end of two thousand and one. Yeah. And then this image emerges, which is like it's it's like an aerial shot of a reef or an atoll, but yeah, also a, a wormhole. It also feels like a kind of reptilian eye. Yeah, an eye. It also yeah. looks like, an, hence yeah. their eyes flashing. Yeah. So, it's just this incredible. And it's funny, isn't it? Like I know that. You know, when I travel, like I love traveling in the United States, but at some level it's temporal travel. Like I love mm. cities like LA mm. because that older infrastructure, I mean, digital culture, it's not just that being on your phone makes places anticlimactic when you get there, you know, seeing it so much on your phone. It's also that with digital culture and phones just comes less interest in the material world. Mm. So I think cities have kind of got more boring yes. as a result. Like, yes, they're backdrops to our own little internalized yeah. Instagram drama. So, you know, this. This sounds you know, like, you know, like it sounds a big thing to say, but I think in some ways, you know, having a partner from New York and having gone there quite a bit the last ten years, New York has got more boring. Mm. It's got bo- It's been become mm. more streamlined. Yeah. Digital culture reduces cities to sets. To sets. Props, backdrops, Instagram backdrops. Whereas some, the reason I love somewhere like LA is that there's something about it, it is so sprawling and so unwieldy. There's something about it that is resolutely analog mm. and resolutely, mm. you know, So the discovery of this phone, you know, reignites the materiality of yeah. the world, the tactility. Exactly, exactly. And so I think many of us, 
the pleasure of travel more and more lies in that pleasure of and I think just not least because I feel when I travel often what I'm tapping into are nostalgic travel memories from childhood mm. so I just all of that I thought resonated in such an interesting way the true crime nut in me or fan in me also to say this, this tapped in is a really interesting subgenre of true crime which is you know, disappearances in proximity to catastrophic events. So there's a famous case of a woman who vanished on September 10th, oh. and nobody knows it, whether it was associated with the Twin Towers. It may well not have been. And there's a famous story of a woman who vanished around Hurricane Andrew. And this, this is a bit like that because the couple vanished... So the, the hotel the couple are staying in, is, you know, it's ravaged, it's you know, flawed by a cyclone. But they vanished a day before that, mm. And there's other, it seems like, cult-like stuff going on. So you have that interesting convergence. It's like, you know, that interesting situation and very haunting situation where foul play occurs on the precipice of a catastrophe. Mm, mm. So it's interesting that, yeah, the woman's name, I forget her name, but, you know, she was last seen in very suspicious circumstances on September 10th and had told people she was, she was thinking of going to the World Trade Centre, but in, in a couple of weeks, the next couple of weeks. And because of, obviously, that day... It was never it was never investigated in real time, and this it's just this is a little bit haunting in the same way. Yeah. Like, yeah, well, it feels like the mystery or the resolution to this mystery mm-hmm. may all involve time travel. Of, time travel, of some description, because it seems like there's occult stuff happening around the fringes, mm-hmm. doesn't there? Mm-hmm. I do what it reminded me of a bit in that sense was um, old the M Night Shyamalan oh, okay. film. I haven't seen that yet. The you know, basic premise, you know, a couple of you know some people are at a resort, they go to a beach, everyone on the beach ages prematurely, they can't escape the beach, mm-hmm. so they're trapped in this beach at this resort where everyone gets older and older really quickly. And this at times reminded me a bit of that just because in those first, you know, 10 or 15 minutes when the couple arrive, they keep on encountering these older versions of themselves. Like they meet a gay couple who say, you know, we go on a holiday every 10 years or something to see if we want to stay together in our relationship. That's what the younger couple are doing. So that, yeah, it's funny you say that there could be that time travel or supernatural thing because, yeah, it reminded me a lot of that M. Night Shyamalan film. Mm, um, mm. I, I was quite surprised by how poor the reviews mm. for where this um, were, for the most part, I wondered given how intriguing the premise was. And perhaps it was people judging it but it makes you wonder based to, on the, the first 10 minutes, which well, are I was the say, most conventional. It makes you wonder, do some critics just watch the first 15 minutes mm. like of the screener? Because this mm. changes so dramatically after that. Mm. I mean, I almost went from not a hard out, but, but an out mm. in the first 10 minutes to being a complete in mm. and being so intrigued by mm. it. And, and just so drawn to how joyous and buoyant and earnest that 2000s was. And I, it, it made me realise, I've often thought to myself, you know, can we periodise the noughties? But it's always because I try and end it at 2010, which mm. feels close. But at 2007, all yes. of a sudden it clicked. Yes, I like that. I and like it made that, sense. I like that idea of the short noughties. The short noughties. I guess we can, we can kind of periodise the teenies now as well. I guess Absolutely. What would you call it? T- 2008 to... 2008, late 19, to, to the, the yeah. pandemic. Or maybe yeah, just to 2020. 2020, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So the long teenies, the short noughties. Yeah. What do the 20s hold in, have well, in store? That's interesting, isn't it? I wonder if the 20s will be marked by the dissipation of the pandemic. Yeah. Like the point at which the pandemic is officially declared over will be the end of the long 20s. Yeah. And that's when we'll hit up Cabra Vale Diggers. Exactly. Yep. So I've mentioned... Or this, not. We've mentioned on this podcast, <laughs> you know, when, when um, you know, during the pandemic, Andrew and I, you know, were doing a lot of driving, visiting a lot of places, and we were out um, at Cabra Vale, and for some reason, Drew suggested we go and have a drink at Cabravel Diggers. I'm like, I'm not sure an RSL is the best place mid-pandemic. Like, it'll be fine. I mean, that, there was coughing up the wazoo there. That was how we, did, how we didn't get COVID from that. I have not. I, 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 paid, I, I took my mask off to go to the bathroom, you know, just to go and wash my hands. And people coughed in my face. So 
Well, like we said, we'll return there when the pandemic that's, is officially that, exactly, declared that's over. That's something we've decided. We're going to have a have a couple of couple of bevies. I'll, I'll have orange juice. <laughs> I'll have orange juice at Cabrabelle Diggers when the pandemic is over. But look, until then, I'm a heart. Have you watched any more of it? I ha- well, I was very intrigued. I, I was going to, but I thought this might be a show for us to return to well, collectively. I was going to say it sounds like obviously not because you've you've kind of you know gone but, ahead. But it could be a good it could be a good candidate. Well, yeah, I'm I'm in, but it could be a good candidate for Wednesday nights too. Yeah, but look, yeah, I, I thought it was. I think both this and Surface are shows that have been quite misrepresented yes. by critics. Yes. Good. Yeah, I think that, I don't think critics have really dealt with these on their own no, terms. No, we get it. <laughs> we get it. Okay, on to our third show of the week. So it's interesting this week. We've had three new shows that have all got fairly middling reviews. Yeah. And this is this is the only one where I, I feel like I kind of get it. Um, <laughs> it's the show is uncoupled. So it's it's a later show from Darren Starr, who has, you know, pretty storied you know, history. Um, yeah, so fill us in about uh, Darren Starr. So, you know, stretching back to the 90s, he was you know, creator of Beverly Hills 90210 oh. and Melrose Place, but most famous, you know, last 20 years for Sex and the City. Um, so was he the, and the showrunner of Sex and the City? Was he the creator? Yeah, he the... was the creator of Sex and the City um, and younger. And as you know, and like... writer? Yes, I think for large parts okay. of it. Um, or he's one of the showrunners, one of the creators. Okay. Um, you know, like I watched Sex and the City, um, all of it, about a year ago with um, Jesse, hi Jesse, and Kyle. Look, some really great moments in it, but on the whole, pretty middling about it. Um, mm. Younger, I think, is great. I okay. think Younger is his masterpiece. But okay. this this continues that same New York milieu. So um, about two characters, at least in the pilot, Michael and Colin, gay couple. Uh, Michael's played by Neil Patrick Harris. Uh, Colin's played by Tuke Watkins, are both openly gay actors. And they're on the cusp of celebrating Colin's 50th birthday, so there's a bit of an age difference in the relationship. Um, and all of a sudden, Colin realises he's, he's leaving Michael, and mm. it kind of throws Michael into a bit of a, bit of a tailspin. So mm. it's, you know, it's about a guy, his husband's leaving him, and maybe for another man. Mm. It's interesting, like, the show, though, I think, has a weird tone insofar as I don't think it's really about this relationship. Like, it feels to me like an elegy for a particular kind of gayness. Mm. So in a particular milieu. So it's interesting as this writer I really like, um, Scott Herring, who talks about what he calls queer urbanism. And he talks about the way in which LA and New York, but especially New York, for decades set the scene, you know, in terms of what gay culture looked like, even though there are gay subcultures all over the United States, you know, all over the South, all over the Southwest. And I feel like this is... What we see in this series is a kind of vision of gayness that once felt completely normative mm. and completely, like, it seems synonymous with gayness, but now it feels like a very small sample set mm. and almost feels a bit geriatric at times. So I feel like it's it's an elegy, I mean, basically for, you know, like, you know, wealthy, white, skinny, attractive New York gay men as a kind of self-appointed tastemakers mm. of gay culture. And I, I feel like it's an elegy for that scene <laughs> more than actually being about the relationship. Um, and it is funny, like, you know, growing up gay, like I remember how much my sense of what gay culture was, was, was shaped by that in the nineties mm. and, you know, noughties, like most literature about gay culture tend to be about that scene, like all the kind of great gay novels of like the seventies and eighties, you know, City of Night, Dancer from the Dance, are all about that New York scene or people gravitating towards that New York scene. And of course it's got a enormous historical significance. That's where the Stonewall riots happen. So I'm not denying any of that, but just in this day and age, it feels a little bit insular. Um, mm. And I, so I feel like the series is kind of an elegy for that mm. more than the relationship itself. So do you think like that, uh, this series isn't anachronistic? 
Do yes, you think it I, I, misrepresents well, the I just, I just think it's, it's, panoply it's, of modern gay experiences? I, well, yeah, I mean, I think it's, you know, I think it's honest about what it is, but I think it does, it presents, I think 10 or 15 years ago, this would have seemed like a real sweep of gay culture, like mm. a real panorama of gay culture. But now the beats feel very tired, I think, like it's full of people who are interested in upscale art galleries, luxury furniture, you know, expensive towers. Like, it's such a narrow version of gay life. Mm. And I have to say, it definitely continues sex in the city's fetish for investment bankers <laughs> and, and, and just for wealth generally, right? Yeah, like it's, yeah. well, I was going to say, the, the real relationship here is all the characters with their money. Well, it's almost like... <laughs> That's it's, the real romance it's, here. It's almost like attractive men and luxury objects are the same thing. <laughs> yeah. You know, when Neil Patrick Harris... One of the things that most scandalises Neil Patrick Harris is that his partner has taken the Hermes towels. <laughs> yeah. I don't know how you pronounce that. Hermes, Hermes. Yeah. I also was like, how is Nathan Lane not in this series? <laughs> like, like, I feel like the... There, are, there is a Nathan Lane sorry. Well, I was going to say, I feel like the, the art dealer is bargain basement Nathan Lane, right? But I was like, where, like, where is Nathan Lane? Like, just to at least have some flamboyance in it. To at least have some... So it's interesting. Like, I, I felt... Cause, I don't, I also don't think the breakup to me doesn't resonate much just because I don't think Neil Patrick Harris has that much range. Like I think mm. he's essentially a comic actor. So I think the scenes here where he's trying to do pathos, they come off as manic, mm. like rather than emotional. Mm. I'm being a bit harsh. I, yeah. I just felt like... He's quite a uh, smarmy kind of uh, yeah. knowing actor. So I agree. I don't think he can really pull off, you know, emotion, emotional vulnerability very, very ably. No, it's it's kind of like, I guess it's, it's a weird thing in that it, it is so much of what once defined gay life and culture mm. to me, but also in its own way kind of suffocating. I mean, you know, you feel that there's not, I know you could, it's easy to pick at a show and say it could be more diverse, you know, it's an easy thing to say, but, you know, there aren't any gay women or trans people, there aren't many people of colour, like, you know, it's, it's very, and there aren't many poor people. So yeah. it's it's very much a kind of exclusive, you know, like, the husband, like Colin, is a um, get the names, um, yeah, like Colin is a like an invest, like he's a wealth, like wealth, yeah. like hedge fund manager. Yeah. Michael is a luxury property, you know, in in you know, like mm. salesman. Like it just, it just, it feels it's so. It's one of those things where it's almost it almost reminds me of a show like Queer Eye for the Straight Guy, where like homosexuality was legitimized in popular culture and in capitalist culture as being at the point of entry for straight people to luxury goods. Yeah. It's got that kind of vibe to it. Like, do you know what I mean? Like, it's like, it's like this, is, this is actually not a... This is not homosexuality as a sexual or romantic orientation. It's as an orientation towards stuff you might want to buy. And, you know, it kind of, it kind of makes sense. Like, I, I just watched the first five episodes of the next series, I'll tell you, of the next episode. I'll tell you what, I, well, the first five episodes. No, the first five minutes of the next oh. episode. Just oh. I was, I had a curiosity about something which I'll, I'll tell you about in a moment. Yeah. But it emerges that um, it seems like uh, Colin has. I mean, Colin says that he he hasn't left Michael for anyone. That he's just he just needs space. Yeah. But it seems like he has left Michael for someone who is Michael's rival property dealer. Oh, so just right, it's all okay. so bound up with property and wealth. That, yeah. And of course, I understand this is a way that gay culture kind of legitimised itself. But yeah. it just it just feels a bit suffocating and a bit insular. I also didn't think it was that funny. Like, you know, like compared to a show like Will and Grace, which is the same milieu, you know, I love mm. Will and Grace. Mm. I just felt like the show was, it's almost like because this scene is no longer the placeholder of gay culture. Mm. 
you know, and it can no longer, is no longer the self-appointed tastemaker of gay culture and can no longer confidently say what gay culture is. It always had to double down on its status symbols. Mm. So there's just so much yeah, talk about wealth and about money and about... about it really like, beats you over the head with yeah, its, uh, its aspirational well, depiction just, of a certain lifestyle. I'm not sure they're it? even aspirational, that they have it. Like just, just, <laughs> just constant luxury property. I just, I found it a bit like, just a bit vapid and... Yeah. Look, I mean, on the one hand, like I liked seeing Marsha Gay Harden just because yeah. I thought she had presence. But let's be honest, she was another gay man. <laughs> you know I mean? But not even a gay man in a real way. Just this this same this same insular vision of what a gay man is. Same so, register. Do you think though that 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 uh, anachronism yep. and that waning depiction of gay is kind of baked in here because Neil Patrick Harris obviously has to hit the dating scene. Well, exactly. Again. And he's superannuated. Is, he needs to. He, he although he has this uh, cultural capital yep. and obviously financial. He doesn't have sexual capital and anymore. this is my caveat. Like, And this is why I watch a little bit of the next... I sort of come back to it. That's why I watch a little bit of the next episode. It could well become a kind of screwball comedy about him trying to relate to the younger generation of gay men and women. Yeah. That could be really enjoyable. Yeah. And that could... That could just freshen it up a bit. Yeah, I thought um, there was a slight, there was a slight melancholy, melancholic quality about his predicament, and and a pathos oh, there as well, which I, I, so that this prevented me from absolutely hating this show oh, look, in look, the way that I did. And look, Sex let me, the City. and look, obviously, let me say, you know, as a gay man myself, like you know, older gay, like growing, facing middle age as a gay person is sometimes, you know, you don't have the same status symbols necessarily that straight people have, and it's, it's. It's just not coded what middle age means in the same way it is for you know in a more heteronormative context. So I'm I'm absolutely sympathetic with that, and I really you know relate to that in some ways as I'm sure all queer people of a certain age do, men and women and trans people, um, non-binary. I just I felt like this show was so airless mm. and so lifeless, and it, it didn't in any way speak to that situation. Mm. It so that that's my hope for it. You know that if if it's about him encountering difference. And encounter and kind of loosening up with mm. this kind of younger scene that could be mm. really enjoyable. It, it could go the other way too. That's true. And double down. That's true. On this kind of antiquated, as you said, yeah. superannuated. Because the, the pilot spends world. almost its whole runtime just setting up the premise. He's he's not single until no. the very last second of this pilot. And even the way I've introduced it, I mean, I've introduced him and his husband as the protagonist, but presumably his husband will drift away at yeah. some point. Yeah. I, I just. I thought like Younger captured the dynamism of the closet in a really interesting way. Do you know the basic premise of Younger? No, I don't. So um, the main character in Younger, she's married, she's got a kid, husband leaves her, she has to rebrand her life. She, she's got a background in publishing, she wants to work in an office, she's told you too old, she's 40. So she passes for 20. Oh, so she looks okay. quite young. So it's all about the age closet. It's right, all about passing okay. for twenty, <laughs> passing for twenty in the workplace. So it really revivifies that closet narrative in a really funny and enjoyable yeah. way. So this, I thought, not so much. Um, so look, I'm, you know, I'm being a little bit hard. I feel a love hate relationship with this scene because it is, and its proxy, the Sydney gay scene, yeah. is so much of what how what gayness initially meant to me coming out and growing up, but mm. also over time. At the time, I found it somewhat suffocating, and in retrospect, even more so. And it, like I said, this feels like an elegy for that scene. Mm. And it just, as it so happens, I don't find the leads, especially Neil Patrick Harris, I don't find him that charismatic either. Mm. You know, sometimes mm. just the charisma. Mm. But look, I take your point. I am curious mm. about... I thought the pathos leavened the the wealth porn aspect of this I, pilot. I, I agree. Which I, I agree was, was pretty, was layered on pretty thick. Yeah, and it just, you know, you know, we talk about like, Everyone basically is white. Everyone is, you know, 
built or skinny and, and above all everyone is wealthy mm. so it just yeah so that, that, that was a big part of it and it, it did take me back to that time i mean you know the queer eye stuff i felt so ambivalent about because like on the one hand it was great that visibility you know just great to see that but it really was just like oh you know it's like all gay men work at like up like gay men are your portal to upscale consumer goods <laughs> yeah. so it is that moment a little bit 20 years down the track look i'm i'm some of them I'm glad it exists. I maybe I've been a little bit, you know, harsh about it. I just I found it airless, and I found it. I, I hope it. I hope it. Re, I hope it relaxes. I yeah. hope it relaxes as it moves forward. Yeah. Um, if I hear that it does, I know people who are watching it. I'll I'll watch it and give it a go because I I I actually think Younger is one of the real underrated comedies mm. of the last mm. like ten. I don't know many. There's not pe- much buzz about Younger. I don't know many people who like it. And one of Carl's friends works in publishing, and she hates it. Mm. So like, wow. okay, yeah, you know, I've heard from people. I mean, but I don't think you're going into it for an accurate version of publishing. You're mm. going into it for the kind of picaresque thing of seeing a woman trying to act 20 years younger in the workplace. Yeah. And again, there's that generational narrative that really works there because, mm. of course, she has to adopt the lingo. Like, she can't look down on youth culture too much because she's got a pass at it. Mm. So that, that generational dynamic works really well there. Mm. I'm Look, I'm an out. I'm glad it exists. I get where it's coming from, but I... I found it somewhat suffocating. Yeah, yeah. Look, I don't think it's it's a show that's particularly for me, but I didn't found, find it actively repellent in the no. way that maybe other uh, some other of Darren Starr's products Yeah, might. and look, you know, the investment banker stuff is a real continuity with sex. I mean, I, I've never seen a show obsessed with investment <laughs> bankers as Sex in the City. So that, that, I didn't find that repellent, but I, having watched all of it and thought there were some really incredible moments, isolated moments, I thought on the whole it was quite a mean-spirited show in mm. a way that I don't think Younger is. Mm. And I don't think 902 and Melrose Place are either. Mm. So this I definitely don't think is mean-spirited in that way. Yeah. But it is just a bit, it's just very insular yeah. and a bit suffocating in some ways. Yeah. All right, on to Archive Corner. That's and right. this week, I'm going to give you a little tour of my wheelhouse, Billy. Go, go for it. So, in my wheelhouse, let me show you on the left, mm. a burly action hero. Mm-hmm. Now, moving further to our right, scenes from prison mm. and, uh, you know, the intake, you know, the strip search, the intimidation tactics, did, did you know the shiving th- on the yard. Thought, did you know that there was going to be a prison element in I this? did not. I okay. did not. I yeah, did right. Not. So we've got the prison scene. Mm. Let me show you further to the right. Yep. Some procedural elements. Yep. A long form crime narrative. And finally, let me... Show you a action hero who's not afraid of an odd quip, mm. despite the fact that he's largely a stoic at heart. Mm. So my wheelhouse, Billy Reacher. Right. So this, this hit all this hit all the buttons for you. This hit all the sweet spots. Right. For me. Uh, so Reacher is an American crime thriller. It's mm. streaming currently on Amazon Prime. Uh, it's based on the Jack Reacher book series by Lee Child. Very, very popular series. Yep. And this is the first in the series? This is the first yep. episode yep. of the first series. The first book in the series. Yes, the, the first killing, book of the series. So this, this, yeah, so this is based on uh, Killing Floor. Uh, so this is Lee Child's 1997 debut mm. novel. Uh, second season has already been ordered. And it stars uh, Alan Richson as the title character. So he plays, you know... The, the eponymous Jack Reacher. Mm. I, think, and, I think plays is a generous word. <laughs> I think acts is a generous is generous in this context, but go ahead. So uh, Reacher is a is a drifter yeah. and a former military policeman 
who tracks down dangerous criminals and seems to live this life of just randomly solving crimes. It's almost mm-hmm. like a neo-Western. He he blows into a town, you know, uh, you know, basically gets gets to the the, heart, the deepest darkest heart yeah. of its of its secrets, mm-hmm. and then you know restores order and then like Shane at the end you're just, loving it just waves waves goodbye you're, having um, done having done the good deed you're, you're high on Reacher <laughs> so have, have you watched ahead on this have you, have you I got, have not yet okay. watched ahead I have not watched ahead but clearly I can tell you're a hard in this, already <laughs> this Reacher is a, is a corrective yep. to the the Edwards Wick uh, Tom Cruise mm-hmm. movie and that particularly uh, you know diminutive depiction mm-hmm. of Reacher so uh, as you may well know um, the Tom Cruise Reacher films were considered, you know, sacrilege by Lee Child superfans because Tom Cruise is everything that Jack Reacher is not. Mm. So Jack Reacher in the books... Like, like entertaining, is, charis- is ca- giant, entertaining, char- gi- charism- giant, charismatic, giant, burly. Witty, witty. Yeah, yeah, sure. He's you know, gi- basically a giant, a giant walking redwood of a man. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, taciturn, mm. but he holds secrets. He's inscrutable. Does he? Does he? Does he hold secrets? So you know, Jack Reacher. You know, his charisma, his charisma, really is what he what he withholds. Oh, so right. it's his okay. presence. Okay. Yeah. And you can oh, okay. Now, now I see. It. Now I see it. Okay. And okay. you can see clearly this show is you know is framed as a corrective, and I love the way that the initial scenes are framed, just just as a clear rejoinder to those movies. So the, the opening scene, you know, Reacher hops out of a bus and the first thing we see are his big military boots and they almost land you know on the footpath with a kind of thud and a, and a you know this kind of resonance this is this, this is you're rhapsodizing <laughs> you're rhapsodizing on reacher then we see you know reacher and clearly you know he's uh has enormous physical stature mm-hmm. uh has enormous presence and just like you know those opening scenes of die hard where john mcclain is really framed by the gaze of others you know, the men who want to be him, the women who want to be with him. Mm. We see Reacher. Maybe, maybe in this case, the men who want to be with him. It's a vibe I'm getting. So so clearly Reacher is just constantly, you know, framed with these kind of awestruck, so it's like you know, Re- upward, upward, upward glances. So Reacher, Reacher is the sublime. Reacher is the sublime. Is, is the, is the sublime. Uh-huh. So, so what is... You know, while this is a real kind of melange, a hybrid of a lot of a lot of genres, one of my favourite genres, prison genre, mm-hmm. and the procedural genre yeah. as well. Um, you know, it's also a great throwback to those kind of steroidal, hypermasculine eighties uh-huh. eighties heroes um, who single handedly uh, restore order. Mm-hmm. So I'm thinking of those real sort of seventies, um, you know, throwback movies. You know, the Burt Reynolds, the um, Oh, there's a, there's one movie I think is particularly intense. Walking Tall, mm-hmm. um, you know, Sheriff Buford Pusser, mm-hmm. who comes back into into town and sees this this town just riven with corruption, it's been white anted by by these you know maniacal uh, corporations, and uh, he he comes in and just just yeah. you know decimates you know, it absolutely yeah mm-hmm. yeah seeks out lays down the law yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. you know you know uh, uncovers the rot. And then, <laughs> basically, yeah, firebombs it, and and once he's like, restored order, just just you know waves farewell. I feel like you've injected Reacher like straight into your veins, <laughs> like you're you're mainlining Reacher. Yeah, so so in terms of that, yeah, this this, this Reacher I think is really true to Lee Child's vision, mm. and I think really true to its influences. And I, I particularly love the genre, the seventy genre of the the kind of hyper-masculine hero, often often a Yankee who's sort of parachuted into these southern towns mm-hmm. and, you know, really roots out the rot. 
Mm. Um, yeah, it's got that feel. It's got yeah, that southern have you, have exploitation seen, have feel. Have you seen the, the, the classic, you know, the Burt Reynolds canon of the yep. so 70s Burt Reynolds movies? Yep. You know, Sharky's, Sharky's Machine, Machine, Atlanta. Mm. Um, and some of his lesser known ones mm. as well just often follow that similar trajectory. And mm. no, no, I mean, I think, no surprise, this is set in Atlanta. Yeah. And Reacher appears to have, you know, more of a kind of northerner sort of, uh, you know, poise and, mm. you know, uh, bearing, mm. if you will. Mm. So um, yeah, so Reacher is just this this figure, yeah, this Reacher, enormous Reacher this figure is of enormous. It's everything you want. Enormous man. magnetism, yeah. <laughs> yeah. enormous magnetism, and 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 charisma, mm. and there's just something so comforting about mm. about the uh, the way that he's he's sort of all seeing and all knowing. Wow. He yeah. sees a he sees a police detective is able to determine that yes, he's a, he's struggling with a, a smoking addiction. He's recently divorced from his ex-wife. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know. He can he can determine that he went to Harvard <laughs> straight away, yep. despite the fact that this guy's real work is a detective in obscure hayseed. Mm. You know, um, he's an obs- uh, he's an observational you know, genius. He's an observational yeah, yeah. genius. Sure. He's also a physical Goliath. Yep. He's a he, he's basically yeah an Ubermensch. Mm. And um, yeah, there's 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 something really satisfying about mm. seeing a return to this kind of hyper virile, um, you know, male archetype. Mm. Um, mm. You know this kind of you know pure. Masculine, I can see. I can see, <laughs> I can see masculine you, energy. I can see you find you know, it very so, so reassuring. Much, <laughs> very reassured by it. Yeah, so yeah. much of this has been subsequently channeled into these kind of you absurd it, superhero movies. Yeah. So it's nice to have this kind of you know super egoic mm. you know male figure that's not a superhero that's superhero mm-hmm. adjacent, mm-hmm. but is <laughs> but is a, a mere mortal. So wow. To me, yeah. To me, this is a throwback to some of my favorite. My favourite genres, mm. you know, the 80s steroidal hero mm. and the kind of ridiculous, you know, these ridiculous feats of physical strength sure. that combined with the 70s kind of, uh, you know, kind of neo-Western. Yeah, no, I think I, I get and it. Then, yeah. And then, you know, the 50s, the 50s Western just style. Going, just going back in time. Back just in time. Just going further this, and further this, back. This a sim- long, to, to a simpler time. This long lineage. A simpler time, This yeah. long lineage of pure American masculinity. <laughs> yeah, right. So... Yeah, like I think I think this is this is yeah this is for me. There's a scene where Reacher sits down at a diner <laughs> yeah. and orders a peach pie. This show is like me doing just that. Yeah, right. Just you know, going to my favorite diner, ordering my favorite dessert, a peach pie, sitting down, maybe a bit of vanilla ice cream, yep. and just spooning it up, really enjoying it. Mm. You know, really harking back mm. to nostalgic memories of childhood. Look, I um, it's hard to. That was that was that was intense. Um, look, it's hard to follow that, and given how much you loved it, uh, it almost seems misanthropic to say that I hated oh, don't, it. Don't don't do me like that. Look, so my first blackbird. That's that's our richer. That's that's your rant. This is mine. Um, right from the beginning, I didn't like his face. I didn't like anything about him. Um, this to me was like. This was like like Blackbird on steroids, literally. I thought this was a, this this was a protagonist with like no charisma, no presence. He was just jacked up, like mate. Oh ne- come on, presence. Mate, come you- on. He has physical presence. Mate, you you know, just, you, Seagal type presence. Mate, you just need to watch workout videos. Like that. That's just go online and watch some workout videos. Like all that he like he was just jacked. That was it. No, no, no. That was no. it. I mean, I mean, whoever thought, like, with with an actor with He's this the strong, silent type. Whoever thought, with an actor with this little presence, that the best idea was to make him quiet. I mean, it was like every single <laughs> thing he said was so couched in silence that it just came out like in monotone. Like when he did talk, it was like he was reading it off a teleprompter. 
Like this was like I felt that this was, was, what was so great. I mean, this is one of the this is one of the art yeah, the sure. sort of archetypes no, no, of I, the eighties actually. Often, sometimes you know they don't speak for twenty minutes. There's been some action action movies where but, it's so delayed but that I feel that like, reveal. I feel like the eighties action hero. I mean, yeah. So I mean, it, yeah. So at some level, I don't like that as well either. So like, I just I just found like, oh, like like where do I start? Okay, so first thing is like, if this is what the books are like. If it's what the Jack Reacher books are like, then I think that the Edwards Wick films improved on them a hundredfold. Like I feel like I thought what worked about those films was the mismatch between Tom Cruise and the Jack Reacher persona. And this film, like it, this show, was like it was like it was actively resisting any trace of wit. And I understand that it was trying to define itself against those films, but I just found it ended up with like one of the kind of the types of conservative, like the kind of conservative outlook or conservative affect that I most hate: seriousness. Like it was so friggin' serious. Really, it was something like, so absurd no, about the premise. No, 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 no. Like it, it was like a self-appointed. Like you're saying it was absurd, but I think it was played dead serious, and it was played dead serious <laughs> as a corrective. That's what's so great about those eighties action heroes. Like, they, they they don't play, but play I just, it for camp. I just found it on the nose as well. Like I mean, the show was so paranoid about the queer gays. Like every friggin' second scene is him like warding off some gay guy or implying some guy is gay or some guy is effeminate. And it was like, oh, ha, 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 ha. Like, it's not because we're homophobic anymore. It's just good old-fashioned American common sense. Like, the show was so paranoid about gay stuff. And I understand that's a part of the action genre, but I just found here it was like, I just found it tiresome. Like, the show also goes, like, to great lengths to make it clear he's not a white supremacist. Like, there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff that makes it, makes it clear to us. I don't know. I just felt like it was like watching, like, Trump ego ideal, but not in a kind of camp way, like not in a kind of, not even an over-identifying way, just in a kind of stolid, sententious, I mean, this this felt to me like it was like made for geriatrics. Like this was like retirees <laughs> television. This was like, this was like an audio book with illustrations. Like I just thought he had, like, it, it was like Jaron, Taron Edgerton in Blackbird, but like the next, like this was like watching someone flex. It was like watching someone work out, but like not even with like particularly good action scenes. Yeah. And like, Didn't you find it atmospheric just this no. fact that this was in a small, oh, you know, no. uh, Georgian town? So what? So what? Like, it doesn't Aren't mean you it was interesting. interested in exploring, you know, the uh, No, I mean, of know, course. Different... I mean, you, you say that it was like, I mean, at the, at, at the same level too, like, I found it was just boring. Like, the main character is invulnerable. That's it. <laughs> and like, I mean, you say... Well, you, he's, he's human, so he is, he is vulnerable. That's what's different about this versus a superhero. But, but there funny, are stakes here funny, because you, he's, he's it's human. It's funny, you say that it was a corrective to Marvel, but to me, this was just like watching a Marvel character in a procedural. Like, oh. to me, he was every bit as tedious as like, it's like Chris Evans in Captain America. It was just like a straightforward, jacked, empty action figure. Like, I thought this was totally in the Marvel... Like, I thought there was a massive crossover with Marvel here as well. So- no, because he's human, Billy. He's human <laughs> and therefore he's vulnerable. He can die, which gives these action sequences really real stakes. I just, Especially I just, those scenes in I the mean, prison. I just thought this was also like the preachiest character we've, like, we've <laughs> encountered in the podcast. Like, every friggin' scene with him, you know, like talking down to someone, explaining the right way to do things. I just... It was like, oh, it was so infantile. Like, I just, so let me itemise it. I found it like, <laughs> I found it so sententious and so like turgid in its seriousness. Two, I thought he couldn't act and he had no presence and all he did was flex. Just watch workout videos. Three, it was like watching a Marvel character, like a, in, a, in a procedural. Four, like one or two gay jokes I was fine with. After the 10th, I was out. Five, like... The constant, constant explanation of why he was white supremacist, made, why he wasn't a white supremacist, made me think, well, maybe 
Yeah. Maybe he actually is. He was into R&B. Yeah, uh, he, he was tracking six, down Blind Ben. Six, I absolutely <laughs> did not buy him as a blues aficionado. <laughs> Seven, I didn't like his face. Eight, the self-appointed alpha stuff got old really soon. And like, like just nine, like, oh, like, oh, I just... Oh, I, if I this, this was a throwback to the 80s in the best if, possible if way. If this is what the books are like, <laughs> the films clearly improve on the books. The one thing I kind of liked about it was it looked like it was the same set, that small town, that you know, that, that standard backlot town square set that they use in the Seinfeld finale in Gilmore Girls. It, that <laughs> reminded me of better shows. I, I, I get where you're coming from. Like you're saying that it you're saying that it's a, it, it over-identifies in an earnest way with a genre that was already like self-consciously absurd. Yeah. But I just, the I don't know. you've got to recreate those 80s but, action heroes but I, I is just, through just I don't sincerity want, I don't, honestness. I don't want to recreate it. I, I, I'm not interested. <laughs> I'm not interested in the alpha, con, like conservative, self-serious, self-appointed purveyor of all wisdom who has no charisma, like no, nothing to give except his own seriousness. Yeah. Oh, well, we I, don't I, know, to, to be honest, we don't know his political allegiances. We I think we do. I mean, I think we do. But look, he didn't fill out a how to vote card at the not, beginning. I mean, he kind of did. I mean, it's, it's not even that. It's just like, it was like this kind of stolid, self-serious, invulnerable character. I mean, maybe you got to be straight. Then maybe it's a straight thing. <laughs> How is he vulnerable? He's human. He can die. It was like, he it was bleeds, like, Billy. It was, it, Richard bleeds. Every single scene was him explaining to people how to live their lives better. Like who made? Like who made you? Like who and made there's, you? There's a tragic pathos in the, in the twist here as well. No, no. I just I was yeah. I, I. He's like a wandering Ronan. I thought this. This is this is this is like a whole culmination. It's a legacy of you know many different action genres. Now I'm bringing the Ronan genre. Yeah, no, I. Can't. This is your Jimbo. This is a modern your Jimbo, Billy. <laughs> I mean, I feel like the way you're. Framing it, the way you're framing it makes it sound you like. Don't hate Kurosawa, do you? <laughs> the way you're framing it is to make it sound like anybody who doesn't like it is humorless. I thought the series itself was so humorless, like really? it was just ah, it was like hilarious. It was like being given a lecture by like an Instagram like ab, ab icon. It's like okay, it's like you're Jack. So what? Like I don't, I don't need you. Ah, oh, I. I look. I'm, I'm going to just enjoy your symptom. I thought. I thought this made like Blackbird. Like I thought this made Blackbird look like Kurosawa. Like this made Blackbird look like the most nuanced. Like in, in like just like. Oh, I I have no words. Like I just, I thought this was friggin' awful. And it also gave me a fresh appreciation. Wow, I had no idea you hated action cinema. Well, I, it's not my favourite genre. I I don't know. Like maybe as a time as it coming out of a time and a place, I find it interesting. And but this didn't even have like the kind of action. To be fair. Like the kind of action cinema you're talking about has a hyperbole that we didn't see here. This was like oh, that. Really? This when was Richard like, comes in, like they're like, oh, the cuffs don't fit him. And then sure, he, he's in I mean, the zip ties and he just breaks out of the zip sure, ties. But something like Rambo is like next level. So I felt like oh, this, I think this is this is on this of a Rambo. I, I thought I thought this was trying to reconcile that with this kind of like serious naturalism. And I just thought that combination, I, I feel that you're so invested. Well, also like you talk about Burt Reynolds, Burt Reynolds is charismatic. Yeah, and Burt yeah. Reynolds doesn't have his shirt off the whole time. Like Burt, Burt Reynolds is an actor. He has his shirt off quite a lot. Yeah, but he's still an actor. He's still got presence. He's got, yeah. he's, he, he bleeds Hollywood. Like, you know, yeah. it's in his bones. I, yeah. I just thought this guy was like, had, had just like nothing to bring to it except I just I just, I just found it boring. It's like yeah, well, I guess you had to you had to like reach it to buy. Into I think this. you had to have yeah like anxieties about masculinity or something. To <laughs> I'm just joking. Am I? Um, I just I don't know. Like I just I this was like it's like a show for incels or retirees. It, it was like oh I I 
I, I had I had nothing with this. I just I thought I, I thought he was boring. Really? He was self serious. Could be like our he, show we watch together. No, we no. both get on board. I think this is very much your. I mean, you just enjoy your symptom. Like this is very much your thing. Really, I I'm thought, not, I thought you know, no. we take this journey together. No, I thought, no. I thought you know we'd be uh, like, what's Richie going to be? What what what's Richie going? What dilemma is he going to? I can tell you, have to beat his beat I, his way out. Of I can it. tell you what's going to happen. He's going to walk into a room, and no matter who's in the room, he's going to explain how they need to live their life. <laughs> He's, yeah, he's just, he was like self seriousness, <laughs> common sense. He was like he was like flat and bland in wow. a Marvel way, and he was invulnerable in such a wow. boring way. I look, I, I this could have been our show, Billy. This could have been us. This is in <laughs> the Blackbird canon of awfulness. So look, I, yeah, I, I thought I thought it was awful. I, I'm not gonna uh. I'm not gonna say much more about it because I feel I feel like the way this conversation is being framed is that to to dislike it is to be humorless or to dislike it is to not understand the pleasures of genre but I, I thought actually the show itself was pretty humorless and I, I, I feel like you, your, your residual investment oh. in the genre is playing a big role here so look I, I thought this was an easily the most the preachiest character we've watched easily easily <laughs> Come off it. easily Who, who's been preachier <laughs> What about uh, Ethan Hawke in The Good Lord Bird? Oh, this was worse. He Ethan... was literally preaching the whole time. Yeah, but Ethan Hawke... Had a loud, obnoxious... But at least... <laughs> Come on, you've got to admit, that was pretty good recall. No, no. Good Lord Bird. Sure. You weren't expecting that. Sure. No, no. You weren't expecting me to hit you, hit you with the one-two no, punch. I, that was an uppercut. I, I had that the good... Was... <laughs> you still haven't recovered. <laughs> Look, I enjoy Reacher. I, I, I had nothing. I had nothing with it. All right, okay. Well, Reacher obviously didn't land, no. but uh, so hit me with your archive, George. Well, Connor. I can't... So I kind of want to call was the, you an incel. Was, was the opposite of Reacher. Um, I, I, look, I stand by that. I think it's the incel retiree, the incel retiree demographic. It's a perfect overlap. It's like people on 4chan or people in nursing homes are going to love this. Um, look, it's kind of funny. Like thinking about like um, the resort, like how just how beautiful that vision is of like that that memory palace of going back to an earlier era. I thought we'd yeah. watch a show that, for me, captures the 90s, yeah. like in, in a more evocative way almost than any other. It's the show that made Claire Danes and Jared Leto household names, My So-Called Life. Oh, so it's, never it's seen it. only lasted for one season. It's only 19 episodes. So it's one of those shows a bit like Freaks and Geeks that is really self-contained. So I think that'll be a really, like, just, yeah, it's really atmospheric. It'd be great to talk about. And yeah. look, it'll be a good palate cleanser <laughs> after Blackbird <laughs> and Not Reacher. everything could be as good as, you know, as, as Blackbird yeah, no, and no, Reacher. No. So, yeah, 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 yeah. Sorry. Um, anyway, um, I'm Billy. <laughs> I'm Drew. That was Pilot Club.